welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of What's the Res, an ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. My name is Josh Herring. I'm a debate coach at Thales Academy in Rollsville, North Carolina. I'm joined today by my co-host, Ethan Dells, and our very special guest, who I'll introduce in just a moment. I'm very excited to welcome you to this episode because this is the official launch of our second season here on What's the Res. Ethan and I started this back in February of 2019 as an experiment to see if we could get a podcast going about debate, and we've had enormous success with this. We're uh, coming up on 4,500 downloads, and we have about 50 episodes to date. Uh, Going forward into this year, we're going to be doing public forum episodes every time the NSDA releases a new resolution. We'll have Lincoln Douglas episodes as they release resolutions, Coolidge episodes. We'll also be doing uh, monthly World Schools uh, episodes. We'll be looking at some of the World School resolutions that are released for prepared tournaments. And we'll also be doing our, our normal kind of round of some episodes looking at debate techniques, other episodes looking at support for debaters, uh, sometimes with expert interviews, and so on. So we are uh, first and foremost very thankful to you, our listeners, for your support of everything we're doing here at What's the Res. Uh, In season two, we'll be aiming to do two to three episodes per week and uh, trying to drop on a Monday, Wednesday, Friday schedule. So be sure to subscribe on whichever podcast app you enjoy listening on so that you can keep up with the latest information and episodes here at What's the Res. So today our guest is international economist Dr. Roberto Salinas Leon. Uh, Roberto is the president of the Mexico Business Forum. He's also the president of the Alamos Alliance, the director of the Center for Latin America with the Atlas Network. He holds an MA and PhD in philosophy from Purdue University. Uh, He was also a triple major from Hillsdale College in undergrad days, focusing on political economy, history, and philosophy. He is also a senior debate fellow and debate lecturer at the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation, where Ethan and I met Roberto this last July. Uh, Roberto, welcome to What's the Res? Uh, Josh, Ethan, it's uh, wonderful to be here and greatly look forward to this chat and congratulations on this uh, great effort. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, uh, I think Ethan and I both know where you are, but help our listeners know where where are you, where are you recording from today? I'm, I'm recording from Mexico City. I'm, I'm based in Mexico City, even though, as we talked about when we met, I, I travel a great deal. But uh, home is Mexico City, and that's where my office and my work is uh, established. Awesome. Fantastic. That's uh, that. That also officially makes us our first uh, international recording, which uh, I guess it does. I'm excited about. That's pretty cool. Well, Roberto, tell us a little bit about your work. Uh, you're you're t- uh, looking at your your website. I was impressed at the various titles that you hold. Uh, it sounds like you do a lot of things in a lot of areas. How how would you describe your work? Uh, well, uh, I would describe my work as uh, I'm not exactly sure what I do, but I do a great deal of it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I'm, I'm very oriented in, in policy issues and in intellectual issues. Uh, and and uh, linked with universities here in Mexico and universities in Latin America, uh, institutions like the Coolidge uh, uh, Foundation, also uh, uh, Cato Institute and uh, uh, Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C., many think tanks around the world. Recently, I've become involved with Atlas Network, which is sort of like a holding or rather a capital venture fund of think tanks. They, what they do is they fund uh, over 450 think tanks around the world, and I'm currently heading their Latin America uh, program, 
which has been uh, a lot of work, but very exciting. In addition to that, I also uh, do some research. I used to be much more involved in writing and in economic journalism, television, radio, articles in uh, uh, U.S. media and, and worldwide media, but especially uh, here in Mexico with weekly columns and, and uh, whatnot. So very active on, uh, on that and also on the lecture circuit. And about 10 years ago, a group of us, a very small group, started uh, an investment advisory uh, practice where uh, because of some of the interesting reforms in, in trade and in telecommunications and other sectors that have occurred in uh, Mexico, uh, we've, we've tried to develop uh, an investment advisory practice and letting companies or funds or individuals that want to invest in Mexico sort of learn the ropes and what to look for and be careful about uh, the obstacles that uh, that are on their way and try to give uh, as much of a helping hand. But what we like to describe was a soft landing in an otherwise complex investment uh, environment. Uh, a lot of that has changed, unfortunately, in, in, uh, with the current administration, but uh, we still believe that uh, we can rekindle this uh, uh, this practice. But in the meantime, I've become more oriented with with policy issues involving trade, involving internal reform, involving the political system, involving U.S.-Mexico relations, uh, and uh, involving uh, the 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 global uh, the economy, uh, the global outlook in the economy at large. Um, part of this is what I do with what you earlier described, Josh, as the Alamos Alliance. Mm. Uh, 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 it's uh, that's the name of an annual conference, a very prestigious, now a very prestigious conference that takes takes place in the northern state of Sonora, in the gorgeous town of Alamos. Uh, uh, Alamos is one of these colonial uh, treasures uh, where uh, many Canadian and uh, U.S. people have retired. So it's actually there are a lot of expats there that uh, that, that, that live there. And a large crowd from uh, from UCLA. So uh, Clay LaForce, uh, Dean Emeritus of the Anderson School of Management, together with a great Latin American economist, Al Harberger, and a few of his uh, students from all over Latin America, decided to basically form a hangout uh, with an annual meeting, off the record. But some of these were former central bank um, governors or current governors as the central bank or finance ministers or people or Nobel Prize winning economists, people of great, great stature uh, that would uh, that, that would come on an annual basis. And it was it's a small group. It's about 40 approximately that get together. And recently in the past 10 years or so, it's gotten quite a buzz. So uh, I'm fortunate that the board has asked me to direct and, and operate this um uh, this project. So that, that also keeps me very busy, but very much on the forefront of what the current global debates and economic and political trends are all about. So yeah, I, I, I keep busy. Uh, I also have time to watch uh, 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 European soccer and believe it or not, even the NFL. What's oh. your favorite team? Oh, come on. I'm from Mexico. It's got to be the Dallas Cowboys, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot of things on that list for sure. And I mean, that's a lot of different things, too. It's a lot of different groups. Do you have, like, a favorite or a favorite kind of event to participate in? Or is it policy writing? Is it attending events? What's your kind of your top uh, thing on that list? I, I, I miss writing. Um, I, I, I do sort of very selected articles now. It's, it's much harder for me now that I've uh, sort of lost uh, uh, the inertia or the, or, or the original groove. 
but I'm, I'm, I'm really happy with the work I'm doing with Atlas uh, Network. Uh, I think it's been extremely exciting. We recently held a very important Latin America forum in, uh, in the Dominican Republic where we, um, we had uh, over, my goodness, almost 300 attendees, all of wow. them tremendous prestige. And what was most exciting, uh, many from the U.S. and even from Europe that, that attended, what was most exciting is to be able to count on real experts on places like Venezuela, which is mm. not really a topic that is covered very much in the United States. And sometimes I'm surprised that very sophisticated people in finance or in the entrepreneurial world, and especially in, in policy or, or, in, or, or intellectuals, they're almost completely ignorant of the tremendous tragedy that is undergoing in Venezuela and why this should be an example for those that, that would like to, uh, you know, sort of preach the nostalgia of, 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 of uh, democratic socialism, which I understand is very well intentioned and there are many very good points. But, you know, the solutions that you have to offer have to be real and have to be pragmatic and you have to look at the evidence. And the evidence, as far as Venezuela is concerned, and there are other countries uh, and other places in the world, but Venezuela is one of the greatest tragedies in modern history as far as economic mismanagement is concerned. So we were able to count on the participation of some really cool people and fantastic speakers that told us the story about Venezuela. But also we had some wonderful Argentinian uh, communicators telling us about the elections that are forthcoming in, in October and whether the Macri regime is able is going to be able to win a re-election, issues on governing trade, also on the nature of populism and how do you define populism, whether it's right wing or left wing or up or down or whatever. It's populism seems to be all the rage all over the world. So that's part of the work that uh, that Atlas does. And and uh, so I'm really proud and very privileged to be involved in it. I'm also very fond of the, of the Coolidge debate. I think that's one of the greatest programs that you'll see. Very creative, because not only do they take you somewhere really far, difficult to get to. Imagine for me, it's flying to Boston, which is a six-hour flight, and then driving three hours to Plymouth Dock. So it's oh, man. going to Europe in one, in one day. And I've been going for many years now, and I'm very privileged that, that, uh, that they've invited us. And what I think is really cool, and then, you know, your audience of what the res is, is going to appreciate about the Calvin Coolidge debate. First of all, it takes place on Fourth of July weekend. Fourth of July was also the birthday of President Coolidge. So you have this beautiful procession that takes place to honor the memory of uh, President Coolidge, who died at a very young age. He was only 60. Um, and, and, and so we go and, and, uh, uh, and, and, and we do the honors. And, but then there's also this debate this debate uh, uh, challenge that takes place among the winners of, uh, of, of basically a year-round uh, uh, de debate competition that takes place. And it doesn't matter what the topic is. This year it was unilateral free trade, whether it's good or bad. It can be immigration, whether it's good or bad, or it can be property rights, uh, um, well-defined property rights, if they're good or bad, or it can be uh, whether integration with the rest of the world is good or bad, or capitalism versus socialism, what, which are the best, it doesn't matter. You have to learn to debate. You have to learn how to talk to each other. So and when, you're, when you're seeing that 14 to 18-year-old uh, um, teenagers are devoting their time not to a soccer camp or, or to or to a fortnight uh, um, camp or, or, or something else, uh, you know, here they are, they're assembling this gorgeous place on 4th of July, 
and and uh, and and doing these very intense debate rounds. And I've had twelve and thirteen year olds come up to me with more sophisticated questions than I've gotten when I've done congressional testimony before the U.S. Congress. No way. <laughs> absolutely awesome, and and I'm really really happy to be a part of it. I missed it last year because we had presidential elections in mm. Mexico. That was the only reason that I that I missed it. Well, it was also the Soccer World Cup, and that also kept me very busy, uh, as it does every four years. But um, but no, I mean I think it's uh, I think it's awesome work, and and so those are two of my favorite projects. I also love doing the Alamos Alliance, though it. Uh, Basically means that I, you know, have to kill myself working from basically November to February. My New Year's begins um, February, uh, the Monday of President's Day weekend, which is when my conference in Alamos ends. So I take a whole week there. Oh wow! Oh, Roberto, that was fascinating. It's it seems like so much of your work involves bringing people together across different national boundaries over important economic issues. I wonder if you could take us back. I remember. Um, I, I was really intrigued. I wanted to meet you in part when I saw in your bio at the Coolidge Cup that uh, you're a Hillsdale grad. And uh, I was wondering if you could just share with us some of your experiences uh, about being a, a student from Mexico at Hillsdale College. Uh, was Hillsdale super diverse when you were there or, or, or not? Or what, what was it like being, being an international student uh, coming into the States at that time? Well, there were few international students, uh, very few. And actually, for that reason, being such a small college, uh, we became friends very, very quickly. So uh, one of my best friends was from Singapore. Uh, another one was from Guatemala, who uh, later, basically, I was best man at his wedding, uh, Jose Escobar. And uh, there, were, there, there was a couple of others from Ecuador. There was another Mexican that, uh, that we, we sort of hang out, not, not very much. But the Venezuelans were awesome. I mean, they're, they're still, I still keep in touch with them. Um, and we later became roommates at a house that we rented. Uh, two blocks down from the main campus. Everything's two blocks down from the main campus in Hillsdale. So, uh, <laughs> too true. Too uh, true. Like it's a very big place. It was a big culture shock when I when I arrived, coming from a city that back then, imagine back then in the in the early eighties was uh, fourteen million people, to a, a little town in um, you know in in the middle of nowhere in in southern Michigan. Uh, and uh, uh, with with what is it, uh, eight thousand inhabitants or six thousand inhabitants? Uh, I don't Sounds know, about right. Like it was a big, big culture shock, but uh, but it was those friendships that uh, allowed me to adapt. And I must say, it had quite a cool academic program. Their liberal arts program back then was very strong. Their econ was not very strong when I was there. When I was, there. they happened to be going through a transition, but their lecture series was spectacular. And uh, uh, and uh, when I when I was a senior in 1983, I actually wanted to stay another year. Uh, I, you know, to me, it would have been great. I loved it. I, I I really enjoyed my time there. And I was able to do an internship in Washington uh, for a whole semester, which was one of the coolest experiences of uh, of, uh, of my life. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I had some phenomenal phenomenal teachers and and. Uh, uh, and despite the lack of diversity, um, you know the, um, the 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 professors and the and my colleagues there. I mean, many many of them are still very very dear friends of mine, and and uh, so it was a really cool experience. I, I'm glad to hear that. I, I know I find it. Uh, I found it quite difficult to complete even a single major there, uh, and and I find it very impressive that you did a triple major. 
I, I am curious. I always love hearing folks who have uh, gone the, the academic PhD route and then end up uh, going in very different directions career-wise. Uh, just uh, could tell us a bit about your doctoral research, and did that have anything to do with kind of the, the direction towards economic policy that you moved in the years since Purdue, or are those really unconnected parts of your life? No, really, they're unconnected. I mean, I ended up doing a, a master's in philosophy at Purdue because I was offered a full scholarship uh, there. I was offered, offered a partial scholarship at Vanderbilt, uh, my heart was set on going to uh, University of Pittsburgh, but I was not accepted there. So I thought, well, uh, Purdue is close to Hillsdale, first of all. Uh, still in the Midwest. Had many friends in, in Indiana. And I loved their faculty. I did a visit over there. And it was a, it was a young and a, and a great faculty. Uh, but it was, it was what is called a hardcore analytic philosophy. So oh. it was all like philosophy of language. Logics, theory, you know, extremely rigorous, extremely, extremely rigorous. I had a great teacher at Hillsdale that managed to convince me, look, before you find out what you're going to do in life, you know, you've been offered this great opportunity to do this master's with these great teachers. Why don't you go over there and, and give it a shot? So I did. And uh, it was this was this was pre-computer time. I had to type my papers. I had to handwrite them and then type them. So uh and and you know, spend my time in the library. And basically, I used the weekends to uh, to catch up. So uh, no 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 time for any socializing. Um, apart from, I had a good friend that lived in Chicago. So uh, about every eight weeks or so, I go to Chicago and blow some steam there. And that was fun. You know, the Cubbies game. I also like baseball. So uh, yes, I love baseball as well. Well, and, uh, and so imagine you know, I'm, I'm the Cubs are near and dear to my heart. Anybody from Michigan, Indiana with the exception of Notre Dame and possibly uh, IU. Although I'm doing a lot of work with IU now, but that's just because one of my dearest friends went to IU and and uh, uh, and IU and Purdue are supposed to have this big rivalry. But beyond that, beyond that, uh, what was, uh, what, what I, I, I got into really neat, deep philosophical issues concerning uh, political theory and the liberalism, communitarianism debate and the, Robert Nozick, John Rawls debate and whatnot, but I always maintained an interest in economics. And this was during during the last decade of the 1980s, where populism reigned supreme in Peru, in Argentina, in Brazil, in my own country, in Mexico. So it was it was it was quite a disaster to see when when are policies ever going to change. And and uh, in 19 in 1988, I was finally offered a job by a local think tank in Mexico that was working on market-oriented policies and especially on, on, on trade liberalization and free trade. And I knew I had, you know, I knew a little bit about it. I studied part of it at Hillsdale and I always liked to read about it. Um, and, uh, and, and so I go, I get back to Mexico in 1988 when Carlos Salinas de Gortari becomes president, no relation, no relation, but, <laughs> You know, well, I used to say it was, but after he, after he was uh, uh, deposed in Spain, then I said no, no. But truly, there is no no relationship with him. <laughs> it started what is called in Mexico the great uh, uh, new first wave of reforms, where he undertook large scale privatizations of the telephone company and of the uh, of the steel companies and of many many companies that tried to rationalize public finance and lower inflation. And and uh, and embark on on trade liberalization, and lo and behold, two years into his administration, it was announced that there was an interest 
in pursuing uh, in pursuing free trade. So uh, with the United States, a North American free trade agreement, and uh, and that was at a small but influential think tank in Mexico, uh, with with some phenomenal people and some of the greatest communicators that you'll ever meet, and and but no one knew how to speak English, and so whenever. Time Magazine called or, or CNN called for a comment or whenever The Economist Magazine called for a comment, they would turn it over. Hey, Roberto, you know, come on, got to answer this. Nice. And I was like, oh, my goodness. So I was like petrified that I had to be a quick study on all of this. And then all of a sudden I'm getting invited to deliver lectures at Rayburn House Office Building in Washington. And I'm getting invited to testify before Congress and I'm getting... And so I became the to- one of the token go-to guys from the free market perspective. Uh, uh, and even lo and behold, Hillsdale invited me to give uh, as an alumni, uh, give a speech. And so, I mean, it sounds very haughty, but I sort of became like a mini rock star on the matter. <laughs> that is awesome. And I find it like find it interesting about the NAFTA thing too. That is just awesome. But it's not because I, I it's just because I, I, I have command of English and, and, and so I had to tell them, what do I have to say? Well, look, you've got to focus on comparative advantage and how this is going to benefit Mexico in the agricultural sector. And then, you know, and then all of a sudden the ministers themselves were calling me, uh, Minister Jaime Serra, who was the uh, one of the Mexican architect of NAFTA, is calling me to his office and said, how can we help you? you know, what, what materials do you need? And I was going over to Dallas and fighting it out with uh, the Rothbaro equivalents and whatnot. Uh, uh, and, and, and tried to get as much media exposure as possible because it came near and dear to my heart until it was finally approved in, in uh, 1993. Just an anecdote, when in November of 1993, uh, the U.S. Congress under Bill Clinton finally approves the North American Free Trade Agreement. It, was supposed to, it started on the 1st of January of 1994, so that means we're 25 years into NAFTA uh, now, and, and I was in my honeymoon when all of a sudden, after it was approved, I had to basically take a day off to, uh, to, to conduct a whole series of interviews because I was getting flooded with interviews. And, oh, man. And my office said, well, he's on his honeymoon. Basically, people said, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a pretty cool experience. <laughs> was, uh, was, was your wife okay with the, uh, the interviews interrupting the honeymoon? I mean, that, 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 sounds, like a, that sounds like a rough deal. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. What Wonderful. um what role did you play in NAFTA? Because I know when I was talking to you at Coolidge, you were talking about um helping with NAFTA in some way. So what what was your role in that process? No, just not not really in the negotiations at all, but uh I had the good fortune of knowing many of the people. What uh, what they what they call the the uh the um the, the Mexico um Me- Mexico Investment Forum, not the Business Forum. It was the Mexico or Mexico Investment Club, okay. which is basically people in Washington coordinating with the U.S. with the Mexican Embassy in the United States, coordinating with 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 groups of interest that were that, that, that wanted to push this. Coordinated with companies, so I was on the fringe of that, and 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 so I received a great deal of information, and I would try as much as possible to get myself involved with the think tank community so that they could open spaces and 
either debating people from, you know, the AFL-CIO or debating people from the Sierra Club or doing congressional testimony and going to New York to the Council of the Americas, Council of Foreign Relations and Chicago, going anywhere that I could in order to lecture in favor of why this would be good for Mexico. And, and so that my role was much more of a media advocate and a public intellectual advocate, uh, writing a lot for the Wall Street Journal, for Barron's, Investors Business Daily and whatnot. Uh, and, and I, uh, I was very fortunate to receive great support from, uh, uh, from, you know, from, from the think tank community in, uh, in, in Washington and, and in other places. And, uh, and, and because of that, uh, those became uh, lifelong, uh, friendships and associations such that in 1994, uh, Mexico, uh, that was the year that NAFTA was inaugurated, but in Mexico, we remember it better as the year when we had the assassination of a presidential candidate. Mm. We had the, the uprising, uh, the military, paramilitary uprising in Chiapas with the Zapatista rebels. And then we also had the, the massive peso devaluation at the end in December. So all of a sudden, attention shifted from Mexico as being the darling of the emerging market uh, um, and, and hailed as the great new economic powerhouse in the emerging market world to, you know, an utmost disaster of a country that had completely mismanaged a, a massive currency devaluation. It was something like akin to what the U.S. suffered with the Great Recession. That's what, well, we also got, we also got completely wiped out with the Great Recession because our cycles are so are so tied now, uh, since Mexico is part of the North American cycle. But in 1994, it was an absolute disaster. It was like, what happened? I mean, we were supposed to, you know, all these people that were heralded as the great uh, economic uh, advisors and ministers and whatnot, uh, all of a sudden, we're you know, we're, we're, we're have to suffer the horrendous shame of having mismanaged uh, one of the worst economic crises that Mexico has. Uh, has, uh, has, has suffered. And so the very same places in Washington, in New York, in Vancouver, in Toronto, uh, and elsewhere, and even uh, places in, in Latin America and in, and in Europe, all of a sudden wanted to know what had happened. And as a result of that, I went from trade to getting extremely involved in, uh, in monetary policy, uh, which is still uh, a topic that is uh, near and dear to my heart. That's how I met Amity Schles and people from the Wall Street Journal back in the day. Oh, is that how you ended up being connected with the Coolidge Foundation through through oh, Amity? That's, that's yeah, like a six degrees of separation. <laughs> I met Amity Schles at a conference I organized in Mexico where one of the themes was the, the peso devaluation. And I was introduced to her by friends that I had already made at, at the Wall Street Journal because she was very much associated with the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal. I had already read some of her work and had a great admiration of her communication skills and the depth of her, of her scholarship. And then all of a sudden, uh, when she invited me, and this was even prior to her joining the Coolidge, uh, um, uh, the, the, the Coolidge Presidential Foundation, uh, uh, she invited me to become involved with, uh, uh, with debate, but also with lecturing in, in, uh, in, in, uh, in venues uh, with, when the Bushes got started. In, in Dallas, and um, and so so she organized these extremely high high profile nonpartisan conferences. You had both Democrats and Republicans, and you had it was really the focus on the issues and not so much the focus on the on the politics uh, on, on the political orientation. 
And I was fortunate enough that she be that that, that she invited me to join on this. And since then, uh, uh, I've continued to 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 have the good fortune of uh, of, of of being uh, of, of of them giving the benefit of the doubt. And now now I think you know now 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 the friendship with Coolidge is very solid, and and we have a good track record. But yeah, that's 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 how this networking. Uh, the, 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 the think tank, uh, world, what is wonderful is the tremendous networking. So, the, the, the exposure that you see to other countries where I can basically today, you know, I can, I, I don't know, I can go to Ethiopia and I know that somebody will, will open their doors for me and act as a host, or I can go to Tahiti and do the same thing, or I can go, uh, to Guatemala, for goodness sakes, in Guatemala, some of my, my best friends from the intellectual side, Guatemala, Peru, Argentina, uh, Chile, there was tremendous, tremendous contributions that the Chileans have, have made, and naturally the Venezuelans that were trying to support as mm. much as possible. Um, I myself am married to a woman from Colombia that I met at UT, no less, at University of Texas. So, so yeah, uh, uh, that's the power of networking. That's fascinating. I know I had a, I had several people when I was in high school. They, they, uh, I think it's the same idea of the six degrees of separation. But uh, the line I remember them telling me was that uh, you're only three people away from anyone in the world that you want to meet. And yep. I, I played that game a couple times. And it's, I don't know that it always stops at three, but it, it is amazing to me how interconnected people are and and different institutions are, and how some institutions manage to really multiply people's connectivity in that way. Yeah, yeah, and not only that, you form you form intellectual uh, and professional relationships, but some of them turn into you know uh, long lasting friendships, mm -hmm. and that's also another great added benefit oh. uh, of uh, of, um, of this exercise. So. Well, Roberto, if you don't mind, I want to shift from uh, from the past to a bit more of, uh, of the present with this next question. Uh, we're, we're recording, of course, on uh, the eve of, uh, or it's tonight, is the first of round two of the Democratic presidential primary debates. Uh, and uh, so I'm, I'm just thinking a bit more contemporarily with this next question. I know you've already mentioned uh, that President Trump's policies have not helped Mexico. Uh, I'd, I'd love it if you could elaborate on that and uh, maybe even extend that uh, to President Trump's other international economic policies. I know we've had uh, a debate resolution that was dealing with um, unilateral, the unilateral free trade touched on both Mexico and China uh, and U.S. economic relations. I know that that extends to other places as well. But generally, as as an economist, as someone who's involved in monetary policy, what do you think of President Trump's economic policies? And are his policies creating conditions for long-term economic growth? Well, some of them actually are. Um, though I think, I, I personally think he tends to be extremely confused on the matter. Um, I'm not. I'm not sure if that's the if that's the image that he wants to give, and in truth, he believes something else. I think there's a lot there of you know. Are you going to walk the talk? And some of his talk sometimes seems to be a ploy to get things done. You know, he said that NAFTA was the worst trade deal in history, and then he goes on and hails an agreement that is a distinction without a difference from NAFTA. Actually, it's a, a little bit of a step backward. Uh, because of restrictions on the auto sector, which is the famous USMCA. You know, and now he's threatening and going about that if you don't approve USMCA, or what he did with Mexico and saying that he was going to impose up to 25% tariffs uh, if they didn't fix the immigration problem. First of all, you can't fix the immigration problem like that overnight. Not, not the wall, 
and not uh, the tariff uh, um, re uh, retaliatory measures or nothing like that to change. What's going to change are the economic conditions in Central American countries. The uh, illegal immigration from Mexico has dramatically, dramatically dropped in the past 10 years. For every Mexican that is going into the United States legally or illegally, there's three of them coming back into Mexico. That may change because of our current president, but we'll get back to that later. So he's, he's got the numbers all wrong, but he doesn't really care if the numbers are right or wrong. It's the message that he wants to send to his constituency. And immigration is what economists call a $500 bill. There's more value added in immigration, let's say, in cross-state immigration between Alabama and Oregon and, and the state of Connecticut and Florida, right? There's much more value added than trade with, with immigration. If you have mobility, that's one of the greatest assets that you can have in a country. And one of the great things about the United States is precisely that mobility uh, that it has. It's another thing that's also allowed places like Canada to develop into um, uh, world-class uh, economies. Uh, in any case, um, I mean, I, I speak not just as a criticism for Trump, but, but anybody who opposes immigration uh, on that same vein, I think, is mistaken. And let me say that Mexico's immigration policies are actually far stricter than the U.S. immigration policy. So we're very hypocritical when we say, oh, we don't like what the narrative is. No, I don't. I hate the narrative. You know, we're not bad hombre, uh, uh, and and uh, we're a much more diversified country, and uh, we're actually the number one client of, uh, of the United States as far as exports, U.S. exports are concerned. Uh, those tariffs would have decimated a place like Texas. You know, and you won't find more, 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 more uh, Trump lovers in, than, than in Texas. I think that's, that's the one where you, you, maybe Austin is like the, you know, the, the, the Texan uh, Democrats. But outside of that, it's basically completely diehard Republicanism and, and, and very much supporters of, uh, uh, of Trump. And yet they're the ones who are scared to death with the 5% up to 25% tariff increase. So I think, I think he's mistaken on trade because trade is not a zero-sum game. The idea of looking at the balance of payments, basically imports versus exports, as if it were uh, uh, gains and losses is completely mistaken. Uh, actually, the whole purpose of exports is to import. That's a bit something counterintuitive about trade. But if, but if you think about it from a real point of view, why would you earn money well, you want to earn money because you want to spend that money on either your kid's education or on buying a, or leasing a new car or maybe buying a new shirt or giving my wife that money so she'll buy me a nice birthday gift. Uh, my, 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 my birthday's tomorrow, by the way. So no way. Day after tomorrow. So well, early happy birthday. Thank you for spending some yeah. of this evening with us. Happy early birthday. Thank you. But my, my point is, if you think about it, why would you want to earn money? Well, not just to keep it, to hoard that money. You may want to save it for the future, but savings are deferred expenditures. At the end of the day, what you want to do is to consume. You produce in order to consume. And to export, it's because you want the money to be able to buy things that other people or other places either make better than you do or have a comparative advantage. It's another principle. Sometimes it's a little bit hard to explain comparative advantage. But trade at the end of the day, what it does, and the empirical evidence is overwhelming. Trade, what it does is it significantly improves the lot of both parties. Why would you want to trade one thing for another with another party unless it benefits you, if it's free and voluntary? 
And then they talk about fair trade. Okay, all right, there's an ingredient to that, and that's maybe the quip with China. It's not so much the, much the trade deficit, other than really what's happened in many, uh, uh, many places in China or China trade policy is the stealing of intellectual property, right? And copying, and there's even a show, I think, on Showtime or on HBO um, on Silicon Valley. I think it's called Silicon Valley. Oh, yeah, I've um, heard of that one. Which, 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 uh, which they have a Chinese roommate, and when he does, he basically steals the property and goes goes off and becomes a gazillionaire in China with it. And and uh, you know they're making fun of it, they're mocking it. So there's a real issue there. But I think that issue is not going to be solved on the basis of imposing tariffs. Uh, actually, uh, the, the the Chinese still living in a highly authoritarian system. They're 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 accustomed to the they're accustomed to the pain. So. Uh, uh, now, if you look at the counterpart, what he's done with tax policy, with deregulation, that has spurred a lot of capital investment, and that has spurred a lot of consumption, and that has spurred a lot of, you know, the, the confidence that is seen in the, let's the, the, say, the stock market, which obviously is not the only measure, but you have low inflation, you, you have basically the lowest unemployment rate that you've had. He was also lucky. Trump was also lucky that he inherited all the painful deleveraging process that had to be done. So he, he basically inherited the economy at the, at the tail end of all that. It's like it was an intensive care in 2008, and then it went into intermediate care. And, and, and truth be told, some of the Obama regulatory policies I don't think worked as well as he would have wished. But truth be told also, the, the, the resiliency and the flexibility of the, of the U.S. economy was able to basically... Um, many economists have predicted that it would take eight to ten years for the U.S. economy to basically rid itself of that enormous, delever painful deleveraging process that, that is that is involved. And so, once it does that, it's like it begins to run out of the hospital, and all of a sudden, it gets a shot of steroids from a tax cut, and another shot of steroids with with tax with fiscal spending, and another uh, tremendous shot of vitamins from the from the aggressive deregulation, the draining of the swamp and the deeper privatization. So I think, you know, you do a tax cut, and you know, what are tariffs? They're tax increases. The ones who are paying for them are U.S. consumers. Those are the worst off at the end of the day from the tariffs. It's not, it's not those that, you're not benefiting, you're not really benefiting those that, that uh, you're basically allowing them to sell at a higher price. You know, uh, if, you're, if you import steel, well, now steel is more expensive. Well, gee, then Harley Davidson may be may be in some trouble there, and and it has. There's been some relocations. Anyway, I won't get into it, but I think if Trump revised his his his, his, his zealous uh, sect-like religious uh, obsession with with uh, with 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 trade deficits and with this whole talk of trade, and if he listened to some of the great advisors that he has, like Larry Kudlow or Steve Moore, well, Steve has recently gotten more more to attacking trade than, than before, which is very surprising. Or the new nominee to the to the Board of Governors of the Fed, this remarkable woman called Judy Shelton. He tend to listen to more of those. Uh, I, I think I think he could revise his, his view on trade. And let me tell you, then the US economy it's already doing very well, but it will do even better. Mm. And so um, I, I it'll be interesting to see what happens in the 2020 uh, uh, contest. I think in Mexico, um, you know, as, lo as long as the USMCA is approved, 
I, I hope it, you know, it doesn't go back to the idea of, of canceling NAFTA because that, that'll hurt us a lot, but it's also going to hurt the United States a great deal. It's fascinating to kind of hear your, your take on the economy. I, I love being able to kind of, I, I don't have the economic background to really uh, pick up on the nuances in the way that you've just been describing. I appreciate the analysis that you're, you're bringing there. Uh, now, Roberto, if you could make one policy suggestion to either the United States federal government and to the Mexican government, or maybe even one to each of those, what policy suggestions would you advocate to each of those governments? Hopefully lower the tariffs. Well, that's a, that's a really good question. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, Ethan, you, you're, you're right on the mark. One of them would be to, to get rid of the whole tariff, uh, tariff war and the, and the if, you, if you actually look at the concept of a trade war, uh, and you analyze it. It's a contradiction in terms. How can you have a war when trade, the very act of trade is to exchange one thing for another on a free and voluntary basis? So how can you freely and voluntarily enter into a fight with somebody? You know, it's like, it's, it's ridiculous. And everyone loses. And, and yeah, and trade is about win-win. And whereas, you know, we're uh, basically closing yourself off it's it's like it's imagine imagine you go to you go to your local Walmart or you go to your local 7-Eleven and you want a Diet Coke and a hot dog and some gum, right? And you say no no no, I'm not going to buy it from you because I'd rather produce my own gum and my own Coke and my own sandwich. My goodness, how long will it take you to do that? Is that making you more competitive or improving your balance of payment situation? Come on, that's so absurd. Well, it's equally absurd because we forget that it's not countries that trade with each other. It's people on different, uh, 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 different geographical regions that trade with each other. But let's not forget that point. So that would be one item that I would, that I, that I would recommend. I would also recommend taking a hard look at some of the great work that some of the uh, think tanks throughout Canada, Mexico, and the United States have done on immigration where you can actually make markets on immigration and what, what, what is really bothersome about immigration and especially about illegal immigration is, 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 is not just the illegal part, okay? You know, it, it, I'm sorry, it's not just the criminal part, I'm sure. Maybe El Chapo's cousin is an illegal immigrant or some distant relative or some narco is, a, is an, somebody from the Setas is an illegal immigrant and they're, you know, they're, they're, they're good uh, illegal immigrants and bad illegal immigrants. The, the illegal ones that are good, like the former chef who has now legalized himself, but uh, Carlos Payan in, in Chicago, that now uh, is the first Mexican restaurant that actually was able to get a one Michelin star. Imagine that. Not in Mexico, but in Chicago. You know, don't tell us that in Mexico we wouldn't want to have that human capital back with us. And there's some others, you know, that have been responsible for assassinations and for horrendous crimes and whatnot. But look, that's also the case. If you're going to use that logic, eight out of every 10 violent crimes committed in Texas are committed, guess by whom? Texas. By Texas. Does that mean we have to build a wall around Texas to avoid those Texans going into Oklahoma or perhaps even into Arkansas and oh, whatnot? No. No, no. What you what you do? That's where your rule of law is so special, and your anti crime, uh, um, uh, and, and and your and your anti crime policy becomes so special. You try and minimize that as much as possible, and you apply that to illegal immigrants too. But there are other proposals where you take, for instance, the fiscal cost, the tax cost, 
how much is this immigrant going to cost the United States government as far as Medicare, Medicaid, uh, Social Security, other types of insurance that are paid for by the government? Well, then in order to get in, you have to get a, a visa, a special visa or a, or a tariff visa in which you pay the equivalent of what you would cost the U.S. government over the course, let's say, of 15 to 20 years, right? And that might be a gargantuan amount, but you could create financial capital markets that where you could be extend a loan that you go off paying little by little once you're legal. And you're going to, and, and, and that's, these people spend fortunes on coyotes. You've heard of coyotes, right? Coyotes. Coyotes are basically intermediaries that help illegal immigrants cross into the United States. Sometimes, sometimes it's actually like allowing yourself to be kidnapped because they extort you or you run into, you run into the most violent and, and incredibly depressing situations uh, where you, you've heard about uh, families being, you know, uh, bunched up together in a truck with the coyotes basically and suffocating to death with the Arizona heat and, and whatnot. Well, instead of spending it on the coyotes, why don't you pay it legally? So these policies make a, a great deal of sense. Now, as far as, far as my own government is concerned, the new president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, I would recommend that he stop spewing so much nonsense as far as populism and national sovereignty and just begin to do the types of things that are required in order to become a reliable investment regime. Because no, no person in his right uh, mind or her right mind is going to put money and invest money in a place where you don't know that your property or your investment is going to be secure or where it can be confiscated at the, at, at, at the, will, of his, uh, the will of his moment. Now, he canceled the new airport because he thought it was a construction of a new airport because he thought it was a symbol of, of nepotism. Uh, and instead of going against the nepotists, he cancels the airport. Well, what about all the rest of us that had invested over there? He lost the money. So the signal that he's sending is an awful signal where basically he can do whatever the hell he pleases. Excuse my, my language, but hey, I'm talking about my presidents. <laughs> so that, well, that, I, I'm afraid we Americans don't have any ground to criticize anyone else talking about their president. We, we don't have very good track records with speaking positively about our presidents, no matter which side of the aisle they happen to come from. <laughs> Especially this one, too. Yeah. Let um, me say this. Part of what worries me about the United States that is that Mexico has become now your number one trading partner, more than Canada and China. And all you do is hear about the wall and the illegal immigrants and whatnot and the tariffs and whatnot. You need to study Mexico and to learn about Mexico because what's going on there is, I think, extremely dangerous right now. You could have a, very quickly, have the current government turn into an authoritarian regime and part of it, part of it is you you don't you don't want that fire on your on your on your back, and not even a, not even the strongest and largest and biggest wall in, in the world is going to detain the potential flood, the resurgence of illegal immigrants if things go sour in Mexico. So you want a neighbor that collaborates with you, and sometimes that nudges you to do to do the right thing, such as approving the 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 uh, the, the USMCA. But I think, I think in this sense, it's extremely important to be able to um, to be able to learn from what's going on. If you learn what's going on in Canada, we'll also learn what's going on in Mexico on the good side and on the bad side. Look at the incredible amount of trade and, and uh, economic exchange that takes place at the border. But look at also what happens with uh, issues surrounding some of the failed regions because of the lack of rule of law or the failure of protection of, um, uh, of property rights. 
And, 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 uh, uh, you know, and to that end, I say here in Mexico, we have to learn and, you know, we can't just unilaterally say that, 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 uh, that we don't like uh, Donald Trump because of his very foolhardy stance on trade and his very visceral and very, uh, uh, damaging na narrative. You know, there's an issue of dignity there. On the other hand, you look at some of his other policies and, you know, I think if we're objective, we would have to, we would have to, uh, applaud them. But that's why, that's why it's important to learn. Well, that's that's certainly uh, an excellent an excellent piece of advice, Roberto. Um, well, let me let me ask your advice on another area as we're kind of uh, uh, headed towards the end of uh, tonight's episode. Now, I know you you've been around debate for for quite a while. Uh, I think if I'm counting the years right, you said you've been at all but one of the Coolidge Cup debates for the last six or seven years. Uh, what, seven years. Well. What what advice would you offer to novice debaters, to people who have gotten just a taste of debate uh, and that they're kind of excited, but they don't really know what to do yet? And and particularly, do you have any economic research tips or any research tips in general or thoughts on communication style? What advice would you offer to people who are brand new to debate? Well, my first advice is that uh, that kids nowadays have the technological wherewithal to be able to very quickly get research. And that's what I've noticed is how, how, how incredibly able they're able to prepare, not even knowing what side they're going to debate. Uh, we've done mock debates uh, where, you know, I've had to defend protectionism or defend uh, anti-immigration stances. And in order to show, in order to show these young men and women that are, that are coming to, to, to join us, uh, in order to show them what, uh, uh, um, what it might look like uh, if I'm debating Matt Denhart. Matt, by the way, happens to be an expert on immigration. If I'm debating him on issues of immigration, and he does the same thing, what would it look like? Uh, and so, the first thing I would recommend, and especially if you're going to get involved with Coolidge, is first uh, read read about President Coolidge and read Coolidge. Coolidge was had the had the great humility of being a very simple man in terms of his words and his explanations, hmm. also very serious one. So there, I think there was a great deal of wisdom involved. And he hated the idea of these know-it-alls from MIT and Harvard and whatnot coming in and saying, oh, Mr. President, but the general equilibrium model that I have now shows that if you do this at the right, that, or with this type of formula and you derive a you know, a transcendental deduction of some incredibly complex theorem, which makes you really proud because it shows that it seemingly shows that you're really intelligent. And then you got to explain it to, you know, the regular men and women. That's the hard part. That's the hard part. That's what Coolidge mastered. It was the common sense principles. But let's not forget, economics is about life. Um, it's e e eco, eco comes from home. So that's why it's the economizing of the household. And, and David Hume understood this, and Adam Smith understood this, and there's uh, Ludwig von Mises certainly understood it. And so, but that means that we all sort of already have like Plato would have said, a little bit of economic knowledge already inside of us, and we want to do is perfect it. And, and how to economize is basically how to become more productive, how to do more in less time and with less resources. Why? Because that's going to improve our, our standard living. So there's a ton of material that is fortunately available. What would I recommend? I would recommend, uh, first of all, that, that uh, young men and women um, read Eat the Rich by P.J. O'Rourke. That's one of the most wonderful textbooks that you'll that you'll see. I think some of his examples can actually you, he could do a new edition and improve them. But that's a 
great, great book because it goes to the heart of the common sense approach to economics. There's another book called uh, Common Sense Economics by Jim Borton that has gone through several editions that I would also truly recommend. Um, and then, uh, I mean, beyond the just immense amount of research uh, and fantastic research that, uh, that is going on, uh, I would also recommend a wonderful book by the former editor of The Economist. Oh, by the way, I was also very much involved with The Economist here in New Mexico. I, I used to run their conference program, the, the magazine uh, uh, The Economist. Nice. Uh, you know, I would say read The Economist, whether you're in favor or you're against what they say. Their prose is beautiful, and they're always explained in a, in a very elegant fashion, and you may disagree with them or may agree with them or whatever. There's a great book that was written at the turn of the century by Bill Emmett, former editor of The Economist, called 2021 Vision. And it's sort of like a take. It's not 2020 vision, it's 2021 because we're in the new millennium. And there he talks about the role of dialogue and civilized conversation and public intellectuals. Uh, the, the great Frederick Hayek, who was like a hero at Hillsdale College, used to say, uh, he who knows economics, knows only economics, knows very little economics. Which means that economics is a science of life. It also has to involve politics. It also has to involve law. It might also even have to involve a study of morality and ethics. And Bill Emmett was able to capture this in outlining the great challenges of the new millennium in this book, 2021 Vision, in which he says, beware of the humbugs who sell you magic wands or instant nirvana or instant solutions to our problems. Instant nirvana. That's a Tonight great phrase. Is, that is the, the, the second presidential debate. You'll see many... Uh, politicians saying, oh, I'm going to solve Social Security, or I'm going to solve the health care, or I'm going to guarantee uh, a Green New Deal, and then I'm going to finance it with modern monetary policy. And a lot of this, you'll hear it back and forth, or Trump will say that he'll fix everything, and you know, within one year that everything will be wonderful and beautiful. And politicians are, are, are prone to this. Part of what debate does is deconstruct those myths, is bring us back down to earth, doing so in a civilized fashion, not in a confrontational fashion, not through insult, not through, not through uh, 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 pejorative, um, adjectival uh, methods. It's actually through conversation and through an exchange of ideas. And you might disagree at the end of the day, but at least you agree that you're going to disagree. So that would be, those would be three of the top of mind um, readings that, that I would recommend for anybody that wants to get into debate. That's awesome. What a great answer. Those really are some great books uh, and great suggestions and ways to think about it. I, I love the uh, comparison you made between the, uh, the very abstract theorem versus something that really can be explained to anyone. I think that's a constant tension in debate. And how it connects to life, too, like how eco relates to home. I actually didn't know that, but I really like how economics isn't just all about economics, but it connects to all these different areas, and it's more you know, comprehensive and important and significant than some people make it out to be as well. It really is. It really is. When people talk about inflation and interest rates, uh, some people don't realize how, how near and dear to to the economic daily activity and our daily routines, uh, Coolidge understood this. You know, uh, less less government. If you reduce the budget, if you reduce government spending, 
That means more in the pocket of the everyday citizen. That's not like common sense, but you understand it. And he was able to explain it with such remarkable finesse, wisdom, and humility. And that's some of it. Some of that is lacking. And even the great, great uh, economists uh, uh, of today, uh, people like Dieter McCloskey or uh, Robert Mundell or, or even uh, uh, Milton Friedman, who passed away over 10 years ago, uh, he would... Uh, he would fail his students that were not able to translate all the complex algebra that he would teach them in price theory into simple language. Wow. As a teacher, I love that idea of, of, of flunking the students who can't, who can't translate the, the jargon into everyday language. And that, too, is certainly something that uh, in debate we're always trying to do because we can never quite uh, get past the idea that you just might have a lay judge no matter uh, what level of tournament you're competing at. Uh, well, uh, Roberto, thank you so much for, uh, for our, this conversation tonight. Ethan, I think I've been trying to keep track, and I think I've asked more questions. Do you have any last, uh, one last question for Roberto before we, before we bring this to a close? Let's see. Um, I would say if, if there was any one top life skill, let's say, because I know you're talking about networking earlier as being really important. What's your number one life skill that everybody should strive towards learning? Okay. Now, I think that's a really hard question, so please ask it again. Okay. What is your... What is the most important life skill for someone to yeah. learn and pursue? Oh, to, li to learn how to listen. Wow. Okay. Learning how to listen, even if you're in disagreement. Don't let, don't let your stomach take over your mind. Mm. Is that a Plato reference? No, that actually comes from a British philosopher called Michael Oakeshott. Oh, yeah, I've heard of Michael. I used him in a debate case one time. Yep. No, There's a beautiful book called uh, um, uh, Rationalism, Politics, and Other Essays, and he has got an essay there, The Voice of Poetry in the Conversation of History, and where he says, you know, why should physics have a superiority over poetry? Why can't we just didn't talk and all of a sudden all of us learn from each other? That makes life richer. And by the way, it makes it a lot more fun. That's really good to hear a reference to the importance of listening, too, because I feel like in the modern world, listening is really scarce, or at least good listening is really scarce. And you hear a lot of people trying to voice opinions, especially uneducated opinions. So I think you're right on the dot, right on the mark when it comes to listening as being a good virtue to pursue. You can make uneducated opinions. That's, that's all fine and well. Uh, but if you're able to learn from the mistake that you made, uh, you know, not, I've gotten crucified by two or three of the, these conferences that I've been to. Oh, yeah, I know that feeling. Josh okay. crucifies me every day. I'm just going to go on the record officially saying I do not in any way physically crucify my students just before I actually <laughs> open myself up to a really horrible lawsuit no. or any angry parents. That does not happen. <laughs> well, you know, you, you see all the jabs and you see it in every day. Uh, I, I used to teach logic. And, and, uh, you know, the same debates you see between Trump and Alexander Ocasio and, and, and how how visceral and violent that narrative gets. That also happened to, during the Reagan era. And I would say, look, look at the way they're talking to each other. Why can't we talk on the basis of rules of civilized discourse and, and civility? And so that, I think, would be the greatest. Learning to listen is also embodies a spirit of humility, of humility before knowledge. 
Mm. Uh, thinking that you know it all. Uh, if somebody says, oh, but I'm the one that knows the truth, then you for sure, you, you don't want to engage in a conversation with that person. Because somebody that presumes a monopoly on the truth, when he or she gets power, then really bad things can happen. Because how can you, you're not only, you're not only combating, you're not only saying something false against the politician who claims to speak with the truth, you're also engaging in a, in a case of treason. And that can lead you very quickly down the road as it did with Stalinist Russia or with Pol Pot or with Mao Zedong to the grave. Um, and that's uh, the, the issue of knowledge of politics there, learning how to listen, being civil, uh, being humble before knowledge. Uh, the, the, that would lead me to recommend one fourth last reading, which is the Nobel lecture by Frederick Hayek on the use and abuse of knowledge in science. It's a beautiful essay that teaches you about the limits of knowledge. Wow. Yeah. I, I like the point about um, good listening for sure. And, and how debate, because definitely one of our goals at What's the Res is to help use debate to assist in discovering truth. And I think, again, you're right on the mark when you say that a lot of people think that they have the truth, but when they get into power, then it's quite evident that they don't. Do you yeah. think debate plays a large role in, in helping discover truth through civil discourse? I think so. I think at least, at least it teaches you to be closer to. I agree. Or, I completely agree. Or at least to, to revise your views, right? Uh, um, if you stick to a point and you're not, and, and no matter what, and come what may, and that's going to be the point, and regardless of the facts, then how can you possibly engage in debate, let alone dialogue? That goes back to the humility thing, too, because... The very word dialogue entails dialectic, entails exchanging one idea for the other, but it has to be in a civilized fashion. It has to be rule-based, and that's what's so beautiful about debate. I completely agree. I think this has been a great interview. So um, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate this. Well, please send me a link where we can listen to this, where I can show it off to my wife. Oh. For sure. We definitely will. We'll do that. We, we, we would like to. We're recording this on, uh, what is today, Tuesday night. We're hoping to drop this on Friday, so we'll, be, we'll send you a link as soon as it is live. Roberto, thank you so much for this conversation. This has been truly a joy to uh, get to learn more about you and your work and really to hear your advice and your views on debate and communication. It's been really helpful this evening. Josh, thank you, and Ethan as well, and, and, and for everybody at What the Res, I, I, I hope to be able to converse with you soon. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you, too, for joining us tonight for this uh, special episode of What's the Res? Uh, we will be back uh, very shortly with our regular episodes, which are part of the ongoing conversation about the current resolutions in the world of high school debate. Uh, come uh, August 8th, the NSDA will release the public forum and Lincoln-Douglas resolutions, and we'll be here with analysis episodes as soon as those do. Ethan, where can our listeners get in touch with us if they want to do that? If you want to get in touch with us, you can always email us at whatstheres at gmail.com. That's W-H-A-T-S-T-H-E-R-E-S at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit at whatstheres underscore, or visit our website. That's www.whatstheres.com, and we will be sure to get back to you. We'd appreciate any feedback. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you again for joining us tonight, and until next time. Work hard, speak well, and seek the truth.